Hello, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 20-minute conversation between myself and Evergreen co-CIO Jeff Dix. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. All views and opinions expressed by any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen Golf Cal. Evergreen Golf Cal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right, Jeff Dix, uh, nice to have you back on the podcast and, and welcome back, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. Markets remain volatile, don't they? Uh, and 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 yet here we are. So uh, great to have you back on. I want to get your thoughts on what's happening right now and some of the outlook uh, that we share. Uh, but let's let's start off with maybe for first time listener, just give us a quick recap of what's happening in fin- in financial markets this year. Sure, um, you're right, Jeff. Definitely more volatility. Uh, it's not as fun to come on here when we're in a challenging market environment. Uh, but let me start with financial market performance year to date. Uh, in many equity markets across the world, we're in a full-fledged bear market. Uh, the NASDAQ today just moved down 20% from the 52-week high. Uh, many European equity indices are down 20% or close to there. Several markets in Asia are also off 20%. The S&P 500 is held in relatively better with a 13% drawdown. But it's still been a very challenging start to the year uh, and very different than the last 18 months where the market has basically grinded higher with only minor market pullbacks. And actually, if you look beneath the surface, the pain has even been more acute. Uh, if you look at the NASDAQ, of course, containing a high degree of tech and growth stocks, 45% of the index is down over 50 to 50% from the 52-week high. That's 1,600 individual names down 50%. That's startling. I don't think most people realize that. Honestly, I, I, that is not on many people's radars. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a bloodbath for a lot of individual names. Uh, you know, earnings season has been highly volatile. Uh, many names are down 15 20% after earnings. Very different than last year. Interestingly, on the bond side, the first two months of the year have been the worst start for the bond market in 30 years. The bond, uh, the Barclays Ag is down 3.25%. Uh, investment grade corporate bonds are down nearly 6%. Investment grade corporate bonds are also off to the worst start in 30 years. Uh, consequently, it's been challenging for your traditional stock and bond portfolio. The bond side really hasn't showcased that volatility dampening characteristic that investors are used to. Fortunately, evergreen strategies continue to perform well versus their relative benchmarks. Heading into this year, we felt like inflation would remain elevated uh, and interest rates would trend higher. So we populated a lot of our strategies with inflation beneficiaries, such as commodity-based positions, energy infrastructure stocks, other other positions tied to commodities or precious metals. Uh, The energy index is actually up 37% through today. Uh, The Alarian Midstream Energy Index is up 18%. Gold miners are up 20%. So there have been pockets of strength during this bear market. Uh, but, Jeff, as you know, outperforming during a down market, um, while it's nice, it's never fun to see accounts dip in value. 
Yeah, but that, I've been here since 2007, and that's been sort of our MO, right? I mean, we talk about it all the time that we're never going to be the firm that tries to chase, chase, chase the hottest areas of the market, and we really try to play defense as well as we can and be in position to capitalize when we have markets like this, when fear indexes are are hitting near records, right? And so I know it can get obviously worse, but uh, that's that's been – uh, that's been the way that we go about things. But let's talk a little bit about what is driving markets down this year. And then I'd love for you to do a, maybe a little follow up on, on how bonds are acting. And you mentioned there in your, in your recap that they haven't been, they haven't been performing as, uh, as maybe the safety valve of a client's portfolio. Maybe just tap into that a little bit. So yeah, what's driving markets down this year? And then maybe talk a little bit more on the bond, on the bond piece. Sure. I'll touch on, I'll touch on that. Well, to start the year, it was for sure inflation rates and, and really the subsequent communication from the Fed and, and other Fed officials with regard to rate hikes and less accommodation in terms of the balance sheet use. Uh, the number of rate hikes implied by the market jumped from three hikes to start the year all the way to eight in just two months. So the forward interest rate curve moved up significantly. Uh, low interest rates, of course, were a big function of what moved valuations for assets higher over the last couple of decades. So anytime you get a quick movement up in interest rate expectations, that tends to hit valuations for risk assets, equities, uh, you know, real estate, et cetera. Then, of course, uh, we had Russia invade Ukraine, uh, which we didn't think would happen. Um, and, of course, Jeff, we're here on a financial markets podcast, so before we talk about the financial repercussions, uh, you know, I don't want to sound insensitive to the fact that it's a humanitarian crisis we're seeing. You know, very sad um, what's happening. Millions of Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes and their families. Thousands of casualties. So much infrastructure that's been demolished. So certainly we hope for a resolution soon. Absolutely. Interestingly, you know, moving to kind of the financial repercussions, uh, from a market's perspective, perspective as we stand today, I don't think a lot of people would realize this, but from the Wednesday before that invasion, the S&P 500 is actually up about half a percent since the 23rd. The bond market's also up 0.7% since the invasion. So, you know, I don't think most people realize that, especially given how much volatility we've seen over the last few weeks. Most of the trading days have seen 1% to 2% swings over this time frame. Uh, so this war has added to volatility, but so far the downside has been rather minimal, at least for U.S. equities. Uh, interesting what's happened over this time frame, to kind of get to your question on the bond market, is the number of implied interest rate hikes that we just talked about dropped from eight hikes over the next year to six. So while, you know, geopolitically we've seen volatility increase, we've also seen Forward, the forward interest rate curve come down slightly. In other words, this might give cover to the Fed to move more slowly. Now, it, this is kind of an interesting dynamic because on the other side of the argument is the macro impl implications from this invasion. And broadly speaking, the impact on the U.S. economy generally should be modest. Of course, that depends on how long this drags on. But where you see the biggest impact, and I know Louis touched on this in previous podcasts, is within commodity prices and specifically energy, and to a lesser degree food prices as well. And, and, all of, and both of those items will have an impact on U.S. inflation rates, which the Fed is trying to combat with interest rate hikes. So it's kind of interesting 
dynamic that this might actually lead to higher inflation rates in the U.S., but at the same time, it's brought down interest rate expectations. Uh, now, with that said, Europe, Europe is actually facing even more of an energy crisis because of the, de- the dependence on Russia, Russia energy. So as this drags on, and it, especially if it drags on further, Europe could face a recession. And, of course, that could actually then bring down U.S. growth rates. At the same time, inflation is elevated, which would lead to a stagflation environment, an environment where you have low growth and high inflation. Uh, so the odds of that scenario playing out has gone up. But at the same time, today, as we stand, U.S. growth still remains robust. Economic data, data still, still is, is fairly strong. Quarter four earnings from U.S. companies uh, grew significantly year over year, quarter over quarter. Sales and earnings uh, beat expectations across the board for the S&P 500, just broadly speaking for the, for the index. And valuations have also come back down. Uh, the S&P now trades at 17 and a half times forward earnings. That's the cheapest in two years. Generally speaking, and of course it depends on the severity of this conflict, when you get these type of pullbacks, you know, 13 to 20 percent, they tend to be buying opportunities. You want to touch a little bit more on the bond, the bond market? Yeah, it's, you know, we're starting to actually see some decent values on the bond side today. Uh, it was, it was, it was a really, uh, I'd say challenging bond market post COVID because interest rates fell so sharply. And at the same time, the Fed announced buying of corporate bonds, both investment grade and high yield ETFs. That led to corporate bond yields dropping, you know, to very, very low levels. But at this point, you're actually seeing some value, for instance, double B, rated corporate bonds, so the highest uh, echelon of high yield. The safest high yield uh, rating category now yields around 5%. Uh, Just last year, they were yielding 2.75, so you're picking up 2% uh, in additional yield relative to last year. You've seen kind of the same thing across most rating spectrums on the corporate bond side. Um, And we were very slow in terms of investing new assets in corporate bonds over the last six to 12 months. But we're starting to pick up the pace there a little bit. Uh, we're still we're still worried that interest rates could move up further. But at this point, you've seen a widening in credit spreads given the uh, geopolitical conflict. So it, it, it's presented a decent opportunity to get some funds to work on the bond side. Okay. Uh, in addition to maybe some of the positive uh, maybe updates that we're seeing on the bond market, let's talk about the market itself. I'm talking about the stock market. What could break positively here? And then maybe touch on what we've been doing in portfolios within the last few days, few weeks. Yeah, it's tricky right now because there's been quite a bit of downside momentum in the markets. Of course, if the Ukraine-Russia situation gets worse, or say moves into other countries outside of Ukraine where NATO or European nations join the conflict from a military standpoint, there would be significantly more downside to markets. Now, the odds of this happening seem low. The Russian military has struggled in Ukraine so far, so it does seem unlikely Putin would do this. Now, at the same time, it seemed unlikely to us and many economists, you know, other other financial firms that, that Putin would have invaded Ukraine in the first place. So despite the odds being low, it's hard to handicap what Putin's going to do. On the other side, a resolution would likely need to a, lead to a major rally within financial markets. Uh, I think energy prices would come back down, volatility would fall, 
Uh, to me, this seems like a more likely scenario than the war escalating significantly outside of Ukraine. Russia has been hammered with economic sanctions that essentially crippled their economy. The currency has dropped 50%. The, rock, the Russian stock market is down over 80% as of today. So, you know, obviously, you know, devastating on the toll from an economic standpoint to Russia. Of course, almost equally as devastating to Ukraine. But a resolution is not an easy thing at this point either. Putin would need some sort of major uh, win, you know, recognizing Crimea, Crimea as a territory, possibly recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states. You know, at this point, Ukraine's been unwilling to do that. And the logical question would be if they do that, what happens next to other regions in Ukraine? So, it, you know, it's not an easy resolution, but we're hopeful that one can happen. And it does seem more likely that a resolution happens as opposed to the war breaking out far worse than it is today. Well, we certainly uh, hope so, right? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, Jeff, I'd say we lean somewhat optimistic optimistic here, given the markets have dropped so quickly uh, with how many, how many stocks are in bear markets, how far the indices have fallen. But we're also moving slowly within our portfolios. On big down days, we've been doing some buying. Um, and, of course, that buying has accelerated as the market has dropped further. Uh, we've also, in recent history, been trimming uh, some of our winners this year, the gold miners, the energy positions. Um, this week, we brought down our energy ex- exposure across several of our portfolios. Um, we think they're uh, – we think and we and, – and I think it's uh, widely known there's a geopolitical, geopolitical risk premium attached to the price of oil and natural gas currently and energy securities as well. That could go away if the conflict does de-escalate. So we think it's logical to move this weighting back down in terms of our energy weighting. We've also been using those proceeds to buy up beaten areas of the market. There are, ma- there are many high-quality stocks within you know, many sectors, say financials, consumer discretionary, technology, that have dropped a quick 20% over the last month or two. And many of these are down 30, 40, 50%. So selling some of our energy equities that are up 20, 30, 40, 50% on the year and rotating into some of these high quality names in the U.S. that likely shouldn't be significantly impacted by what's happening seems logical to us. With that said, we are maintaining a relative overweight to inflation beneficiaries given where inflation rates are today um, and also the undersupply in many of the world's uh, in terms of energy. Also, U.S. energy positions should, and we believe, do command a premium today, given what's happened in Russia. Yeah, and I think something that I would highlight, just from my view, and just maybe just to tell the story a little bit of, of the way we do things at Evergreen for, a, for a, a casual listener, right? And because I have these conversations with clients and to be fair, prospects all the time about what they're doing versus what we're doing or what they think they should do versus maybe what we would recommend. And, you know, there is a popular belief out there for many that you should cash out when the news is scary and wait for things to settle before getting back in. And that's just not the way we do things. Um, I know that some you know, some individual investors, many individual investors out there uh, run things that way, right? The news gets scary and like liquidate everything. Let's just move to cash and wait for the news to settle. And 
in many cases, what I've seen is, is then as the news gets better, markets are already up, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40%. And they miss that whole wave, that initial wave of returns by waiting for the news to actually get better. So in our, I guess, you know, just to highlight the way we do it is you trim a little bit on the way up, you know, if not trim significantly, if things get really overvalued and, you know, then add, uh, you know, meaningfully on, on, you know, almost like staircase style on the way, on the way down, you know, down a little, buy a little, down a lot, buy a lot. So as you're describing, you know, we're, we're, we, as an active manager, we are, uh, you know, looking at opportunities, taking advantage of things that are doing well and rotating into things that, that maybe are, uh, are becoming, are, you know, are becoming more attractive, you know, and, and I was talking to a client yesterday. It's that old saying, you know, buy low, sell high. But as we unpacked it, the emotion makes that so challenging because, you know, human fear and human greed set in and, and it makes you want to do the exact wrong thing at the wrong times. And and, and maybe one more thing I, I would add to this, because we've been talking a lot about energy lately. I remember two years ago, you know, so many conversations with clients that, you know, this is again back when you know, pipelines were way down and, and oil was, had turned negative right in the early stages yep. of COVID. I mean, yep. it was a very popular theme at that time to just X energy. You know, I, I even think Jim Cramer came out at that point and was like, energy's uninvestable or something like that, right? I'm, I'm getting the soundbite wrong and maybe I, I, maybe I'm misremembering this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was like somewhere around that time yep. period, you know, and yet that was like the best time you could be investing in energy, yeah. right? Uh, you know, so to speak. And now you have all these people kind of rushing back into like, like, oh, maybe I was wrong. And, you know, let's rebuild an energy allocation. And you're like, man, you know, energy's up 100, 150, 200 percent or beyond that, you know, since since the time that you exited, you know, and then conversely, and, you know, and this is maybe more acute right now is the fad of investing, you know, and, and how popular it became to invest in tech over the last certainly last decade. But I mean, you know, there was there was conversations recently where it was like, why would you own anything but tech, right? Like tech is the only thing that you should be owning. And I remember having conversations with clients and investors that genuinely believe that, you know, and, and this was, again, going into last year, last summer, going into last fall, uh, where clients were really trying to, you know, double down, triple down, quadruple down on tech, you know, and now tech has gotten hammered and tech in many cases, for at least in some conversations, seems untouchable right now. And there's a fear that it's just going to keep going down, but it's such a backwards way of investing, given yeah. what you just said about how many positions in the NASDAQ are down 50% from their recent highs, right? So again, yeah. this whole idea of buy low, sell high, makes sense and people you know they that's been tossed around for as long as i can remember uh and yet the the implementing that the the, the you know the practical means of actually doing that as an investor becomes it just seems like it's very challenging so any comments on that well yeah i think that one of the the better examples of the tech side is the arc uh, kathy woods arc etf you had huge inflows coming into that last year because of how solid the performance had been. And now you have the ETF down 55% since July, and now you're starting to see outflow. So it's that classic wrong style investing, wrong, wrong cycle investing. Uh, in addition, uh, on the energy point you made, what's fascinating now is you're starting to see people kind of, you know, on CNBC, on, on financial, uh, newsletters start to say you gotta you gotta add energy to your portfolios. You have to have a component of energy in the portfolios. 
And now, now that's after this huge rally we have seen, we've seen. So yeah, now we're starting to take some chips off the table on the energy side. Can I have, can I, I'm going to ask one bonus question and then you're not prep, prep for this at all. Um, but one bonus question that I have is the idea of indexing, right? So I, I, I get this a lot from, from investors that are like, Hey, why wouldn't I just own the S&P 500? You know, like very, very low fee. You just get the market return over time and, and, and there you go. How would, you know, conversations I've been having with clients is, if you do it that way, what happens is you end up owning the most overvalued portions of the market at all times at exactly the wrong time. And conversely, the most undervalued portions of the market, uh, you know, at, 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 you know, you have a under investment to the most undervalued areas of the market at exactly the wrong time. So can you give any like uh, of your commentary on indexing versus maybe what we do on a more active as a more active uh, approach? Sure. And, you know, I, I take it from a couple angles, Jeff. The, the first thing I'd say about ETFs and indexing is, I mean, there's a lot of good aspects to, to ETFs and indexing. They're low cost. We use them for several of our portfolios. They get you broad exposure. Trading costs are low. There's a, a reasonable use for them. But as you point out, with regards to the tech and the energy examples that you made, a lot of times you get huge inflows to these ETFs at precisely the wrong time. Case in point, and this isn't exactly an indexing ETF, let's say the ARC uh, ETF that tracks, uh, you know, that's an actively managed strategy, but you had huge inflows into that at precisely the wrong time. You tend to see that across a lot of the styles and sectors of the market, and we track fund flows very closely here at Evergreen. Our models suggest that when you have huge inflows into a style or, or a sector, it tends to be a good time to reduce exposure to that space. Um, and if you compare that with valuations, it gives you a, a very good signal. Uh, and, and large cap growth, and particularly tech, uh, valuation became very expensive. You started to see huge inflows into that space. And so you have it. Tech started to underperform last year. So I think... In addition, you know, for clients to do it themselves, they have to be disciplined. I think that's where advisors really come into play. A lot of times, individual investors sell at precisely the wrong time, and they get into areas after they've performed really well. So I think part of our job is to help clients navigate financial markets where we're, you know, buying areas that are attractive from evaluation and from a sentiment perspective. Um, but, at, you know, at the same time, I think, you know, ETFs uh, – add a certain amount of positive uh, attributes to the market because of low costs, limited trading fees, broad exposure as well. So I don't think ETFs are are all negative, but certainly um, there's some negative aspects to them. Well, I'm so thankful for you and the rest of our investment team. You guys are so dedicated. I think you're, you know, obviously I'm a little biased, but I think you guys are, are so talented and, and uh, in what you guys do. And, and I love that you guys are, are uh, holding the reins, right, so to speak, of, of directing client portfolios and navigating what has been a very turbulent market and, you know, really a, a very turbulent and, um, and uh, you know, complicated uh, last couple of years with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things that we've never experienced before. But I think you guys have done a, a very, very good job, uh, you know, by and large. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful for, for you guys to uh, – to be here, and anyways, I appreciate your time. Last, Thank you so much. And how about this? How about I give you one bonus question as well? Go ahead. So, so moving to sports, I just uh, saw this across the Bloomberg Newswire, coincidentally, 
and Russell Wilson just got traded to the Denver Broncos. What is your reaction to that news? Well, I mean, you and me are both Seattle, uh, Seattle born, Seattle bred, right? So, I mean, I grew up, uh, in the greater Seattle area and, you know, was, have, have been a Seahawks fan my whole, my entire life. So certainly thankful for him and everything that he's provided to our city as a sports fan of our city. You know, the fact that he helped lead us to our first Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, those memories, I have those with my wife and, and my oldest, you know, we, and he remembers that. So, I mean, I, it's sad, right? It, it feels like Griffey being traded. It feels like, you know, the, when yeah. Sean Kemp was traded. I mean, these big yeah. moments in Seattle sports history. But, Alex uh, Rodriguez. Uh, yeah, well, not as much, right, as for me, at least on that one. But, yeah, um, yeah I mean, there's there's just certainly like a lot of gratitude, you know, and obviously I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're, why would the Seahawks let him go? You know, he's such a, such a talented player, and so I don't know, you know, it's hard. Uh, yeah, what what are your thoughts on, on that trade now that we're talking about it? Well, you know, I think we're in a tough situation, uh, the Seahawks. We have, you know, Bobby Wagner, Russell Williams, Russell Wilson commanding such a big salary cap. You know, we need to we, – we have very little in the way of first-round picks. Uh, we're also in a division, um, you know, with the L.A. Rams, the San Francisco 49ers, Arizona Cardinals. All three of those teams are really in good position. So I think we needed a little bit of a reset. So I'm sad to see Russell go, but I think we need a little bit of a rebuild. You know, we'll see what happens. I'm optimistic on our front office. Still still love Pete Carroll, so I'm, I'm hopeful – we can we can turn it around. Me too. Go Hawks. I'll finish with this. Uh, and I know we're going in a couple different directions here. Uh, I talked a lot about markets. Obviously, now chat a little bit about the NFL. Last night, I was putting my girls to bed. There was, you know, just in terms of the, the Ukraine situation, there was a video that went kind of viral yesterday of a girl in a bunker, kind of like, you know, one of those uh, bomb shelters in Ukraine, little girl that's, my, I think, nearly the same age as my four-year-old. And she was singing, at least in Russian, the song from Frozen called Let It Go as, you know, kind of like it seemed like maybe her mom was like, hey, it'd be cool for you to sing this. And, you know, everyone's kind of sitting down here, obviously, past, you know, trying to stay safe and passing time. And so she sings Let It Go and and I believe it was in Russian. I mean, I don't, I don't know the words to it. And I was able to show my, my seven-year-old and my four-year-old, and we were just talking about life here in the U.S. and, and what it's like for, you know, maybe other kids in other parts of the world. And, it, and so in that regard, that video really hit home in terms of the, like you talked about, the humanitarian crisis yeah. that, are, that they're going through. And so I don't want to, yeah, I, I do want to, you know, at least finish this up with, our thoughts and prayers for everybody in, in the Ukraine and the families and the, and the, you know, the children and everybody that's being impacted. And obviously, you know, everybody from, from Evergreen is hoping and, and hoping and wishing and praying for a, for a quick and speedy resolution, everything there. Absolutely, Jeff. I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, we're lucky to talk about financial markets and sports and, you know, we're lucky to be in the United States and yeah, definitely thoughts and prayers to the Ukrainian people. All right. Appreciate your time, Jeff. Thank uh, you, Jeff. Yep. We'll get you back on, back on soon. Okay. Thank you. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.